Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but, they, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. You know, whether you are writing a novel or you're working on a piece of art or you're doing your first research paper in school, one of the hardest things to do is to figure out what are those first words you should use. How how do you get started? Uh, Some people are very natural at that. For others, they know what they want to say, but but how do you get started? We're going to play a little game here for a moment. I'm going to give you the first few words to famous works of literature, and you're going to have to determine what that work is and and who wrote it. So here we go. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick? Did somebody say that? Melville's Moby Dick. Okay? You get the idea of how, how the game works, right? All right. Here's the next one. I'm an invisible man. What? Yeah. The Invisible Man. He really gave it away there at the beginning. Ellison's Invisible Man. Next one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There you go. Now we're catching on. Dickens' Tell of Two Cities. Last one. He was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the Gulf Stream and he had gone 84 days without taking a fish. Dave Harville. No, just kidding. Not Dave Harville. (laughs) Close. Close. I thought I had it there. No, who was this? Yeah, old man in the sea, Hemingway. All right, so you see, it's, it's tough to figure out how to get started, but when you get started in the right way, people never forget it. When you get started in the right way, it sets the stage for everything that, that comes after it. Even worship services are designed to begin in a particular way. You may have grown up in a church where there was a call to worship at the beginning of the service, Even if you don't print the words call to worship in the bulletin, every service by default begins with some sort of call to worship. Something begins that service. A man named Bob Coughlin who writes a lot of music and and teaches about worship says, A call to worship reminds us that coming together isn't our initiative. We didn't think this up. God is the one who has called us out of the world to rehearse the gospel in his presence for his glory and our good through the power of his spirit. That should encourage us to engage fully with God in worship because we come by invitation, not presumption, through the death of Jesus Christ. And then a guy named Brian Chappell says, With a scriptural call to worship, God invites us by his word to join the worship of the ages and angels. And then listen to this next part. God does not simply invite us to a party of friends or a lecture on religion or a concert of sacred music. 
he invites us into the presence of the king of the universe before whom all creation will bow and for whom all heaven now sings. We are invited. We are not only invited, but we are called into worship. It's not something that we decide to do, something that we make up, something that we provide the content for. It is from God and by God and through God that we come to this time of worship. And you say, well, what does that have to do with Psalm chapter 1? Psalm chapter 1 is the call to worship for the book of Psalms. Just because it's listed first in the book of Psalms doesn't mean it was the first one that was written. And I know that this is tricky when you look at your Bible, but, but for example, when you get to Paul's letters in the New Testament, the book of Romans is listed first as Paul's letters. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Paul wrote Romans, but it wasn't the first letter that he wrote. They're not always listed in the order that they were written. The same thing goes for Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 was probably one of the last psalms that was written, and it was written in order to provide an introduction to this group of psalms that had become known as the worship book for God's people. And so Psalm 1 is a call to worship. It is preparing God's people to worship, except it never mentions music, it never mentions singing, it never mentions an announcement time. It doesn't mention any of those things that we would normally think of as worship. Instead, it talks about the life that we're supposed to live. So here's the interesting thing. A book of 150 chapters that ends in chapter 150 with this huge call to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's how it ends, but it ends with a call about how we, it begins with a call about how we live. And I think the point there is that we can't presume to come before the Lord and praise him if we are not living for him. The best way that we prepare to worship the Lord is by giving our lives to him, by following after him. Sometime you'll come together in, into a worship service and you think, you know what, I just didn't really get much out of that service. I didn't feel worshipful. I didn't really feel like I connected with the music. I didn't really feel like we were worshiping today. It could well be the leader's fault. There's, I want to be upfront about that. It could be the leader's fault. Or it could be how we lived during the week. If we didn't live for the Lord, seek after the Lord, follow after his ways, it would be very arrogant and prideful to presume that we show up on Sunday morning and all of a sudden we feel worshipful toward a God that we never thought about during the week. And, and I want to be careful about not being too harsh with that language, but, but the way that Psalms begin says the way that we live prepares for the way that we will worship. And it's a call to worship, and on the back of your bulletin, there are four things that this psalm calls us to. And so if you want to turn your program over, make some notes, you're welcome to do that. You obviously don't have to, but you have an opportunity to do that. There are four things that this psalm calls us to. The first is, it calls us to the blessed life. Look at verse 1. It begins, blessed is the man. Now this is not just referring to men in the gender sense. It's, it's a generic term. If you're reading now the New International Version, it'll probably say blessed is the one. But it's a call 
to the blessed life. So the book of Psalms is saying, if you will go this direction, if you will give your life to following after and worshiping God, you will be blessed. But we have to make sure we understand the word blessed there. It doesn't mean that you will never have trouble in life. It doesn't mean that you will never face sickness or job loss or family problems or internal depression. It doesn't necessarily mean that. What blessed means is found in verse 3. And guys, I messed up the PowerPoint here. If you could jump back up there where earlier in the PowerPoint where verse 3 is listed. It's probably about the second slide on the PowerPoint. If, if your phone is open, your Bible is open, look down at verse 3. Because verse 3 explains what the word blessed means. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So here's what blessed means. Blessed is not the absence of trouble. Blessed is having a place to stand firmly when trouble comes. Okay, let me back up and say that again. If blessed is not the absence of trouble. Blessed is having a place to stand firmly when trouble comes. Those who are truly blessed in this life have a foundation for life so that when something comes that is difficult, that is unexpected, that is painful and disastrous in your life, there is a foundation. Your tree is planted by streams of water so that no matter what season you're going through, you have hope, you have joy, and you have fruitfulness in life. And so what the book of Psalms is preparing us for is what does it look like to live that type of life? What does it look like to have a blessed life? We've talked about this. We've used this joke before. We live in the South, and when people say bless your heart, they don't mean bless your heart. We understand that that's not how how it works. But sometimes we say, you know what? I am blessed. And that comes across as sometimes very cheesy or very over-spiritual to people who aren't part of the church. But we are able to say, I am blessed, even when we are going through hard times in life. There is a way to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. To know that because we have a place to stand, we are truly blessed people. What does that look like? Let's go back up to verse 1. So it's not only a call to a blessed life, but it's also a call to reject the life of sin or to reject the way of sin. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Some translations there, instead of scoffers, will say mockers. Now, in the book of Psalms, and this is true for just about all the poetry that you'll find in the Bible, it uses parallel words and parallel statements. So I've tried to kind of lay it out the way that this passage works. There are three sets of three in the way that this psalm was written. So walks, stands, sits are the actions. Counsel, way, seat are kind of the avenue or the conduit. Wicked, sinners, scoffers are the people. And you can see, blessed is the one. If you are going to have a blessed life, you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, you don't stand in the way of sinners, and you don't sit in the seat of scoffers. There's some debate about how this works, but I read one very famous commentary, and it gave one option, 
And then I talked to my wife, and she and I came up with another option. So if you have a very scholarly commentary, and you have your wife's advice, which do you go with? Well, that's easy. You go with your wife's advice, because it seemed to make sense to us. Some commentaries think that these statements just give a holistic view of a life rejecting God. In other words, it's just three different ways of saying the same thing and, and kind of intensifying it and giving it a whole picture. I think, and I think it because Amanda also thinks it, that there is a progression that happens in these statements. Walks, then stands, then sits. There's, there's kind of a progression going there. Counsel is sort of advice. Way is a way of living. Seat means that's where you're going to sit your life. That's where you're going to be. Wicked are the generally evil. Sinners are those who are actively sinning. And scoffers, the word scoffer is very particular in the, the Old Testament. It is someone who is arrogant against God, who mocks God. They not only, you, you may have, you may be here this morning and you don't believe in God. And we want this to be a safe place that you can come and see what people do and what they talk about. But there's a difference between not believing in God and mocking God or being arrogant against the concept of God. When you get down to scoffer, you're talking about someone that is completely arrogant and and mocking toward God. So what's the concept here if it's a progression of thought? The concept is this is exactly how my kids end up splashing in puddles and playing in mud when they've been told not to. Because you know how this works. You walk close to it, then you begin to stand in it, and then I say, Emery, don't sit down, and what does she do? She sits down in it. You walk, and you stand, and you sit. You get close to it, because you were counseled or you were advised by your siblings to do it. And then you stand there because you think this seems pretty nice. And then you sit there because you've totally rebelled at that point And you decided, I'm going to do this. What we have to realize is this, how, this is how sin works. This is how rejecting God works for adults as well. You begin to walk toward a particular sin. You dabble in it, you think about it, you get advice about it, and then you begin to stand in that particular sin, and then you just sit down in it and say, this is where I'm going to be, whether God cares about it or not. Do you see the way that that progression works and the way that that works in our lives? It holds true for sexual sins, It holds true for financial sins. It holds true for relational sins. We dabble in it, we stand in it, and then we sit down in it. I I like the concept about how when we're battling against sin, there's sort of three different processes that match up at this. The first is that you struggle against sin. You say, Lord, I don't want to go this way. I want to follow you. I want to live the blessed life. Don't let me go this way. So you struggle against it. The second is you begin to justify it. You begin to say, you know what? Maybe it's not so wrong that I'm doing this. And so we find ways to justify the sin. And then the third one is you set up camp in the sand. 
the sin. You just say, this is going to characterize my life. I don't care what my family says, what my friends say, what anybody says. This is the direction that I'm going to go. And so what this text tells us is that if we are not careful, we will set out wanting to live the blessed life, and yet we will begin to walk, we will begin to stand, and we begin to sit in sin. And so the response to that, our response is just to ask ourselves, am I walking toward some sort of sin that is going to take me away from the life that God has called me to live? Am I getting counseled to follow after this particular sin? Am I dabbling in something that I know is not going to lead me in the right direction? Have I reached a point maybe where I'm standing there? I'm contemplating, do I sit down in the mud or do I get out of the mud? Or you may be in a place that you just said, forget it. I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to sit right here in this sin. The reality is, even at that point, God's grace is sufficient. He is able to forgive. He is able to rescue. The thing I love about the mud analogy with my kids is later on in the book of Psalms, David cries out to God and asks him to pull him out of the mire. This idea that you have been so stuck in mud, the mud of sin, that you can never get out on your own, and you call out to the Lord and ask him to rescue you, to pull you out of that. And he is able and ready and willing to do it. Next week, we're going to devote a whole psalm to the idea of repentance. What does it look like to repent? What does it look like to experience God's forgiveness? But I want you to see up front in Psalm 1 that the blessed life, the life that God has called us to live, is a call to reject this life of sin. But then there's a positive side. You're like, that's a very negative way to begin the sermon. There's a positive side that comes up in verse 2. Look at what it says next. So you don't sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight. There's a call here to delight in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Look at the screen. You can see there's a different parallel that happens. Sometimes in the book of Psalms, you'll get what's called a chiasm. One statement is made. Then the next statement is made twice in different ways. And then you come back around to the first. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The word delight and the word meditate are meant to be parallel. So they're meant to complement. What does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? It means that you meditate on it. In the Bible, the term law can sometimes mean the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, I almost said Matthew, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible are called the law. But here, the psalmist is referring to law as all of the instructions of the Lord. Everything that points us toward the will of God fits within the law of God. And he says that we are supposed to delight in the law of the Lord. I don't know about you, but unless you're in the legal profession, you probably don't delight in the law. It's not something that you get excited about, that you think about. Growing up in the sports world, The guys who were umpires or referees or officials, they had some morbid delight in the rule book, in the law book. They read it. They contemplated it. They meditated on it because they wanted to know it so much so that it was a part of their life. The psalmist here is saying to delight yourself in the law of the Lord, and the way you do that is you meditate on it. 
Now, I asked my kids this week because if I can't run something by my wife if she's sick, I run it by my kids, and I get good feedback there as well. But I, I asked my kids, what does the word meditate mean? And they, the two older ones, said almost in unison, it's when you stand in front of a statue and put your fingers together and say, mmm. I was like, well, I have no idea what I've exposed my kids to. As the, so apparently I need better media choices at the, at the pastor's house. But that was their idea of meditation. And, and frankly, that's probably the idea that most people in the world have of meditation. We would call that Eastern meditation, meaning uh, from the countries in the East. Some people call it contemporary meditation. There are lots of different terms that go around uh, about it. Let me give you the difference. Let me give you the difference between contemporary meditation and Christian meditation. Contemporary meditation is primarily focused on emptying the mind. You're trying to get the thoughts out. You're trying to find a peace. You're trying to find some place of stability. I know that's an oversimplification, but primarily contemporary Eastern meditation is focused on emptying the mind. Christian meditation is focused on engaging the mind. One focuses on emptying the mind. The other focuses on engaging the mind, and specifically engaging the mind with the Word of God. And so to meditate in the Christian sense is to read God's Word, to put God's Word in front of you, and to think on it, to chew it over, to let it roll around in your head, to think, what are the implications here? How does God want to speak to me through this Scripture? And here's something interesting that will happen. If you're like me and you struggle in times of prayer, you struggle staying focused, you struggle staying awake, you struggle trying to think about what to pray about, probably the best thing you can do, and the thing that has changed my prayer life more than anything else, is to allow God's word to drive your prayer time. In other words, you read something in Scripture and then you say, how can I meditate on that? What can I think about? What can drive my prayer life? There was a man named George Mueller who ran a famous orphanage in the 19th century, an incredible man of faith, an incredible man of prayer. I want to read you some things that George Mueller wrote in his journal. He says, I see more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about is not how I might serve the Lord or even how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. Before this time, my practice had been, at least for 10 years previously, to give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. But now I see that the most important thing I have is to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, while meditating, my heart might be brought into communion with the Lord. How different it is when the soul is refreshed and made happy early in the morning from what it is when without spiritual preparation, the trials and temptations of the day come upon you. What George Mueller is saying is that early in his life, he would wake up and he would begin to pray. And he says in other places of his journal how distracted he got. 
and how he felt like he was just wasting time because his mind would go all over the place. And he would spend 30 minutes and not know what had happened. And then he said one day he realized, what if I read the word first and then I allowed that to drive me toward prayer? And he, he attests that that was the one thing that changed his life of prayer and his life of faith more than anything else. Let me encourage you to do that. Let me encourage you to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate on the law. And the way that you do that is in the morning, in maybe a very small snippet, you put God's word in front of you and then you say, Lord, give me something to meditate on about this today. Let me engage my mind. For example, if you say, Owen, I need a way to get started. Here's two ways to get started, okay? The first way is next week's sermon will be Psalm 38. One option is you just begin to read little bits of Psalm 38 this week. And you say, Lord, let me engage my mind, let me meditate, let me understand what you're saying in your word. So you read for a minute or two, maybe in the morning, and then you say, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to think about something in that. That's one option. The other option is you take Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 that we mentioned earlier, and when you drive your kids to school, when you or yourself are getting ready to go to school, when you see a school bus go in front of your house, you say, Lord, let me meditate on this scripture so I can engage my mind and pray for those who are at school right now. All you're trying to do is you're saying, Lord, let me delight in your law. Let me delight so that I meditate so that it begins to transform my life and I begin to live that blessed life that you've called us to. Okay, last thing. We're going to wrap up with this. So there's a call finally in verses 5 through 6 to take refuge in God. Look down in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm chapter 1. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If we're not careful here, if we're not careful here, it sounds like if you live a good life and delight in the Lord, then you'll be able to live forever and you'll be blessed. And if you live a bad life, a wicked life, then you will perish. You'll be separated from the Lord forever. And and there's a way in which that is absolutely true. But what is not true is that our eternal security is based upon our actions. Do good things and then you'll live forever. We know that scripture says that all of our deeds are like dirty rags, that everything that we might bring before the Lord is not good enough to stand before him, but he has made a way. How has he made a way He's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. It would be nice if we saw that in the Psalms, which we do in Psalm chapter 2. Turn over to Psalm chapter 2. So either turn over a page or or scroll down in your phone. Look at how Psalm chapter 2 ends. Psalm chapter 2 is a royal psalm. It's It's a psalm about the coronation of God's anointed king. Psalm chapter 2, verse 10 Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. I know that's a strange phrase. It it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but it's this idea of submission, of reverence, of giving yourself to the son of the king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 
That word way connects back to the beginning of chapter one. For his wrath is quickly or readily kindled. And then look how it ends. This is incredible. Remember how Psalm 1 began? It began with blessed is the man or blessed is the one. Look at how Psalm 2 ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So how do you find the blessed life? How do you reject sin? How do you delight in the law of the Lord? How do you live with the Lord in all eternity and not face destruction? You take refuge in him by giving worship to his son, which is exactly the message of salvation, the message of the gospel that we find in the New Testament. That we come before the Lord, we trust in him, we worship him, and we do that through his son, the anointed one who took on our sins. So what's the call to worship in Psalm chapter one? Let's go in reverse for a second. Take refuge in God through his son. Give yourself fully to him. Delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on his will. Meditate on his ways. And reject the life of sin. Don't walk there. Don't stand there. Don't sit there. Give yourself to the Lord. I'm going to pray for us. After I do, we're going to sing a a famous hymn about following after the Lord, about, about seeking after his ways. If you are walking or standing, or sitting in a particular sin, let me ask you just to take refuge in the Lord, to turn to him, to repent, to ask for forgiveness. Maybe use this time to ask that the Lord would give you strength this week in the morning to delight and to meditate on his word. Maybe you just need to come and say, Lord, I want to worship you. I need you to show me how. Whatever it is, we're going to have a time of response, a time of singing, and I would be glad to pray for you or care for you during this time. Let me pray for us.